Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm just going to hold this down so I can see. Uh, thank you also for the promotion to professor. I'll, uh, I'll take that home with me to SOAS. I'm a, I'm a lecturer. I'm a, um, in some sense a relatively junior scholar, so I'm especially privileged and honoured to uh, be speaking to you. Um, I'd first like to just warmly thank the committees of Eupria. UPRA and uh, AFCA for inviting me to give this address and especially to uh, MacDild EXO uh, for her support and inspiration bringing me here and to Alka for all of her organisational assistance. I'm hoping to be provocative, so I'm hoping that uh, this keynote address will spur some reactions, responses um, and maybe set up some ongoing questions for thinking about the theme of peace and conflict studies from the margins to the center, rethinking Europe in an unequal world. So my title for this talk is Decolonizing Peace and Conflict Studies. And my argument is quite simple. It's first that peace and conflict studies does need to be decolonized. And second, that this means also addressing the situation in Europe and thinking about decolonizing Europe politically as well. So there's a combination of the intellectual and the political uh, imperatives here, and I hope, that, uh, I hope to convince you of both of these things. So where do we begin? I think, and as uh, Itir and uh, Uwe have already intimated, there is a crisis right now in Europe, and it's specifically a crisis of Europe as a liberal and humanist kind of project. Okay? We can see multiple factors interacting here, and I'm sure you'll be familiar with them. Uh, at a global level, of course, we are seeing the quite rapid collapse of things which we thought supported the liberal world order. So two days ago, the President of the United States decided to cut the funding for the UN in half from the uh, US budget, um, and a 37% reduction for USAID and also the State Department. So this has an immediate impact on peacekeeping and peacebuilding missions across the world. Several of them are being wound up, others are being drawn down uh, very dramatically. On the same day, or around the same day, he announced uh, a ramping up in militarization. So $50 billion more per year for uh, defense in the US, and also uh, a new designation of places which are going to be temporary battlefields. So you wouldn't really have to you know, formally declare war and go through all of that boring diplomacy stuff, but you could engage in temporary hostilities, probably with aircraft and uh, drones and so on. Um, and not really have to worry too much about international law and these annoying institutions which otherwise bind his hands. So that's in the US, and it's tempting to see that as exceptional, but actually the pattern is much more global and much more pervasive. Uh, within Europe itself, we're seeing an unprecedented growth of far-right nationalist and neo-fascist forces. Uh, we can see this uh, in Eastern Europe, in Hungary and Poland, uh, but we also see it in Britain and France and Germany and Austria. It is not completely unreasonable to suppose uh, that the EU may in some sense cease to exist, at least in its present form, in the near future. Certainly my country, uh, the UK, is, has decided it's going to leave. Uh, it's not clear uh, whether France under Le Pen might also do the same. Uh, the Netherlands seems to have dialed it back at least for now, but even in bringing these conversations to light, we see even the centrist parties moving to the right and trying to occupy that nationalist space. 
There's also pressure within these countries to reduce their aid budget. So I'm actually quite encouraged to hear that the German parliament has reaffirmed its uh, commitment to peace and conflict studies. I can assure you the same will not be happening in the UK to the extent that it that happens at all. And beyond this, maybe a different kind of picture, but also part of what we might call the end of the liberal world order, which is the rise of the rest, right? So this is other countries, particularly in the global south, China, South Africa, India, just deciding to do business bilaterally, um, you know, trying to avoid having to deal with the entangled institutions of the West. Um, so in all of these facets, if we take them together, we have this crisis of what we might call the liberal humanist project that has prevailed for the last 20 or 30 years. It's losing political ground, it's losing moral authority, um, and it's kind of, it seems to be on the way out. This is a problem for peace studies. It's an interesting and troubled time to be involved in a field devoted to the study of peace and conflict. Now, peace studies began life, at least in its European form, as quite a radical alternative, right? It was supposed to be rooted in social democracy. It had a view to questions of global justice, structural violence, exploitation, and, vi and um, empowerment. <coughs> However, since the sort of 60s and 70s, it's become increasingly entangled within the institutional bureaucracy of the liberal and neoliberal project. Um, this is in part because that's where the funding comes from and you know, people reorient themselves to uh, respond to things like funding calls. But more broad broadly, it's because of a political dispensation in which this kind of liberal humanist project was seen as hegemonic. What did this mean for peace studies? It meant that loss of the analytic focus on things like structural violence, less willingness to talk about things like disarmament, economic exploitation, cultural violence. Academics, understandably, found themselves more and more pushed to be policy relevant, okay? So for peace research, that meant becoming entangled in the intervention infrastructure. So thinking about how, from a northern perspective, best to help the global south, okay? And so peace research becomes about informing us to help them better. So what's going to happen now? If this liberal humanist project is under threat, if there's a, um, a pressure on the funding and the ideas that have sustained it, what should peace research do? Right? Should it simply allow itself to be co-opted by a more militarized, more nationalistic, more self-interested global institutional bureaucracy? I would say this would be a great shame. Okay? This is precisely what the founders of peace research actually sought to avoid in the context of the Cold War. They wanted to establish a space for intellectual inquiry that was not subject to the strategic diktats of east-west or nuclear power and so on. They really wanted to renovate a kind of humanist project and think about questions of peace and violence in their fullest sense. What I'm going to argue that peace and conflict studies really needs to do is to decolonize its thinking, okay? And this is, in a way, a response to the unfolding crisis of liberal humanism. And I think we as researchers can all play our part in finding a way to think differently about what we do as researchers, but also about Europe's place in the world uh, that develops an alternative future for it than simply this nationalistic, uh, hard-right kind of fortress Europe thing that's emerging. This means that we have to think intellectually and we also have to think uh, politically. 
Okay, so what is the problem to which decolonizing is the answer? Some of you will be familiar with these arguments, and I apologize if there's a small amount of repetition. Um, what does it mean to say that social science is colonial? This is not just a buzzword. I think sometimes when I've gone about talking about decolonial this and decolonizing that, occasionally one gets eye rolls because this is kind of the flavor of the month. And I'm very much hoping that it doesn't just disappear in a couple of years when people have moved on to the post-human or the Anthropocene or whatever is the next kind of big thing. Um, I want to put it to you that there are serious intellectual problems here and they're central to how the world works and they deserve kind of working out an elaboration uh, in full. Um, but I'll, I'll start at a more general uh, level. Um, the analytic of the coloniality of power, which has come out of Latin America um, with thinkers such as Quijano and Dussel and Mignolo, uh, is a useful one to think about what the general problem is. So this analytic works at a grand uh, philosophical scale, and it says that modernity and coloniality are two sides of the same coin, right? That is to say that there is a hierarchical disposition which is central to the modern project. And that means that when modernity moves throughout the world, it always does so by creating a subject, a Western subject, and objects, objects which are not part of that modern rational uh, subject. So that's a kind of a big broad statement, but it means concretely, uh, and the situation they were responding to is this, that even though you can decolonize a state in terms of declaring political independence, the hegemony or the idealization of Western uh, people, ideas, ontologies, uh, epistemologies uh, still continues. So even though we have had, if you like, formal political independence, the world is still organized hierarchically. It still places certain people and certain ideas and certain histories front and center uh, and puts others, if you like, in the shade of that, right? So the system fights back. Put them all by. Okay. Okay. I kind of need it to keep time, though. <laughs> okay. Um, that's okay, no, that's fine. So we have an asymmetrically and hierarchically organized world. And we can see this in uh, conventional thinking, such as the idea that some part of the world is more developed than other parts of the world, and that particularly in peace and conflict studies, one of the tendencies has been to uh, use what we think are successful models operating in the West and try somehow to export them or visit them onto uh, other parts of the world. Now, some of these tendencies are easy to spot, um, and others are so now uh, natural or invisibilized to us that they don't really uh, make themselves manifest. Uh, in fact, they're just kind of mundanely assumed as part of benchmarking, as part of uh, what it means to run a state, as part of what it means to run an economy. Um, but the wager being offered by uh, thinkers who talk about the coloniality of power is that the very way we think about the world is thoroughly infused by this colonial gaze. So we always have this in the back of our minds or in the ways of organizing our knowledge that leads to this automatic hierarchy uh, between uh, the West and its others. 
what does this mean in, in peace studies? I'm going to just draw out some of the ways in which, excuse me, in um, peace studies and in social science more generally, this colonial gaze or coloniality of power operates in the way we organize the world. First, and I think this is a critique you'll be familiar with, um, you have the use of both Eurocentric and historically inaccurate stereotypes operating as ideal types for how societies work. So even though they are abstractions, and we agree that you know, abstractions are needed for conceptual thought, they are abstractions which abstract away all of the important stuff. So here in Westphalia, we can think about the idea of Westphalian sovereignty. Um, but if we think about what actually happened in Westphalia, to Westphalia, um, all of those supposed norms, all of those supposed uh, processes didn't actually work, right? There was a lot of war, there was a lot of conquest, there were um, turbulent fights over identity. So why is it that we still think about a Westphalian model? I don't just mean Westphalia, I mean Europe in general is supposed to have accorded with this Westphalian model, but it takes out everything that happened for centuries in between. This isn't, this isn't an incidental problem, right? If this thinking of this idea of the Westphalian, or sometimes people call it the Weberian state, this rational, peaceable, uh, modern institution, is the thing that is being exported through uh, peace interventions globally, it matters if it wasn't actually true. Okay? It matters both for the authority of the interveners, but also in terms of what might happen when you try to bring such a thing into being. Second, we use comparative methods that mask the fundal, fundamental interconnectedness of the world in terms of how it came about. Uh, and so this is what we're encouraged to do in social science. We treat each country as a little unit and then we compare them and we rank them and we say uh, what variables obtain. But these methods, particularly where they compare uh, north and south, they obscure the ways in which, uh, say, non-European actors, land, labour, ideas, were constitutive and important in the rise of Europe. Um, Britain is one of these great examples where people talk about the British model of X, but it, and you try and compare maybe Britain and India. But Britain's Industrial Revolution was simply not possible without uh, its integration with India as part of a connected unit, right? So in terms of the raw materials, in terms of the technologies, in terms of the labour that, um, that Britain used to rise, they were precisely sourced from elsewhere. So the comparative fallacy is to pretend that these things are all endogenous to the countries in question. For peace and conflict studies, um, sometimes you see this in terms of uh, the endogenization of failure. So if places in the global south uh, have failed or collapsed or had uh, violent histories. These are seen as endogenous uh, problems of their own, emanating from poor state formation and so on. There's some, but not very much, discussion of the ways in which these polities were always part of global systems. Third, we still see, and I think this critique will be familiar to you, ways in which Orientalist stereotypes are woven through peace and conflict studies um, and social sciences more generally. A particular bugbear of mine is the use of the term warlords to, dis to describe uh, people who are in charge of uh, armed forces which are not part of the state, basically only in the, in the global south. Right? We don't use this term 
for Western actors. We don't talk about Northern Irish warlords, but we're quite happy to talk about Afghan warlords and Congolese warlords and so on. What this does is uh, say that this is not a serious political actor, right? This is a greedy, irrational, apolitical uh, kind of uh, person who doesn't have the right to whatever struggle it is they're in, entailed in. That might be true, right? but we can't assume that and we can't import that understanding in a lazy way through using these stereotypes. Uh, we would never think, I think, I hope, in academic circles of using the term gold digger, right? I mean, there's an offensive gendered term which is highly reductive in terms of what a person is about. Um, but we use this term warlords quite casually, and, um, but it's deeply orientalist in terms of its deployment and its framing. Fourth, particularly in quantitative uh, analyses, we use data sets which encode all of these subjective, partial, one-sided stories and present them as objectively useful. Um, the correlates of war is an obvious uh, reference point for this, that uh, it coded war in a way such as to de-recognize all war happening in the non-West uh, non between uh, states it did not recognize and European states. So there was no mention of colonial wars or genocide or so on, um, which would have made the pattern of violence that it then describes in its data set very different. Even now, right, even knowing these flaws, um, we still continue to use these data sets as if they're kind of robust and if they're um, unobjectionable. I've even seen manipulations in which you can tell that there is some kind of delegitimizing of the non-West going on. So I read an article uh, three days ago in which uh, somebody who was doing uh, research in an, in an African country decided to uh, discount all of the responses in this survey uh, given by people who the interviewer thought was probably lying. Okay, so we cannot imagine this kind of research being done in the West, but it becomes casual and appropriate to say, I'm not going to count these guys because they're lying. I mean, there's no explanation of how you would know that, why you would say that. If you seriously think a lot of people in your survey are lying, then f do the information some other way. I mean, it's not enough to just say, well, we're going to just discount them. Okay, so there's loads of examples here, and I don't want to go on um, too long about this. But the point is that conflict and peace studies, even though it is this kind of progressive and humanist formation, and it has these ideals, finds ways of continuously coding in a colonial gaze into its concepts and to its methods and to its uh, historical narratives. So what I'm suggesting is that we need to think about how to decolonize this. Now, unfortunately, there isn't a recipe straightforwardly for decolonizing anything, right? It's an ethos, really. It's about humility, reflexivity, interrogating the categories, um, and creating space. But I think we can get better at it as, as researchers and thinking about people who go about the world. Academics don't just kind of float above the world, but we, we make the world, right? We make the knowledge that feeds into governments. We make the knowledge that we teach students. Students go out and they go and do things, and you know we are very much part of this world. Okay, so, um, what does it mean to decolonize? I would say a major intellectual encouragement in the decolonizing project comes from standpoint theory. 
Uh, and this argues that marginalised positions in terms of society can actually have epistemic advantages when it comes to analysing what is going on. This is because they are subject uh, and um, they're subject to more of particular situations and they may have to learn to adapt and survive within that situation. So the example Patricia Hill Collins gives is of black women domestic workers in the United States. And she says that black women have to understand gender, race and class, uh, particularly in those situations, because they have to constantly negotiate them, right? They have to be careful who they offend, how they operate, in ways which are completely invisible, often to their employers or to people outside that situation. Similarly, we can think of a lot of situations in which the representations or the dialogues of the people at the top of a situation or apparently in control of a situation do not correspond with the understandings of the people underneath. And of course, people like James Scott have done a lot of work on the weapons of the weak and the, and the understandings of the weak here. Thinking this through into looking at peace and conflict studies. So the first encouragement is to think with and through the experiences of those who occupied positions of marginality within the social formation under discussion, right? Who is it that's being affected by this conflict? Who is it that's being intervened upon? Who is it that's being guided? Such people or groups will have their own understanding of what is going on and they will be framed in ways which may or may not be compatible with those the researcher brings with them. Actually, we will probably find that they have multiple ways of articulating the same situation depending on who they're speaking to. But those understandings may be more connected with the hermeneutics and the real political dilemmas at the heart of any situation. They may also add connections and insights which are invisible to the external researcher. So I'm saying, in some sense, very simply, we have to start by asking the people who are there what is going on and ask them to explain it or talk about it in ways which make sense to them. So to be clear, this is not an essentialist argument about authenticity, okay? This is about, in some sense, a materialist argument about the relation between where you stand, what you experience, and then how you understand the world. And it's also not just an argument for us as researchers to instrumentalize the perspectives of people on the ground to write better papers, okay? We need to think about research as becoming itself a more dialogic and accountable practice. How might we do wider recalibrations of what we do? Um, one might be thinking about formulating research questions in a way which is guided by the urgencies or the needs of the people that we are trying to speak with or uh, think with in terms of uh, our research. This might mean radically changing the original research design and where we have the flexibility to do it, we should consider doing it. We need to think about, even at the stage of designing the question, right? what really are the important questions to ask here? It certainly means, I think, building a longer-term collaborative uh, relationship with your environment or your interlocutors, rather than just helicoptering in, taking data and going out again. I, um, I saw a colleague discuss this as a, a different kind of extractive industry, right, an epistemic extractive industry, uh, which I thought was actually kind of accurate for some of the things um, that we might be tempted to do. And it's not to say that, of course, there aren't pressures to do it. Everybody has pressures in their lives to get this stuff done quickly and get out and you know, show us the payoff. But if we're thinking about peace research as something in the world which can empower 
Um, of course, that requires trying to think about materially how the research uh, can be made accessible again to those people who are the subjects of that research and how they can use it for their own ends. Um, another kind of orientation which we can give ourselves when we talk about decolonizing research is a serious engagement with the historical presence of the societies in question. Okay? This means uh, you can see and understand more about uh, the political ideas, about the material conditions which are there. And a serious engagement with history actually just makes it much less possible to treat spaces redu reductively and through kind of lazy processes of objectification, right? Understanding the social formations and the trajectories and the uh, different struggles in a space um, means that it's much harder to dismissively call someone a warlord or a you know, greedy actor without really fully engaging with what it is that they're doing or why people like them. And I think finally I would just say um, on, on this decolonizing element, there should be a reflexivity about whether you would write about Europeans in this way. This is not a habit that we generally do, but it's only when we start asking ourselves, you know, would I really treat any other group in this way or would we expect research about or for the West to be done in this way that we can start to unravel some of the structural problems uh, within how research is conducted. Okay, so what are the payoffs? So we've got this problem of coloniality, we've got some uh, things about how we can decolonize uh, research. Each person's got to work out, I think, their own answer to this. Um, I attempted to practice aspects of this decolonizing uh, perspective, if you like, in my research on international state building in Mozambique. And what I found was that trying to think with and through the perspectives of the people who were the targets of state building uh, gave me a really different account of what was going on than what I had been reading uh, in the literature. I could see the historical significance of different activities much more strongly. I could understand their political uh, significance and resonances in terms of uh, public and private understandings. And I could also understand dim dimensions of lived experience which otherwise looked just a bit weird. Um, so for example, one of my findings in the book was about a dynamic of disposability that characterizes the relationship between interveners and the supposed beneficiaries or targets of intervention. So uh, to give you an example, in the agricultural sector, there are uh, lots and lots of short projects that try to get farmers to uh, grow cash crops and grow cash crops such as sesame. Now, everyone knows that sesame can only be grown in a particular field for three or four years before the land is tired without any chemical fertilizer, but it does give you a quick fix kind of cash crop. So a lot of NGOs continue to promote sesame because in the terms of their funding cycle, three or four years, it exactly gives you the yields and the income uplift that you would expect. But for the farmers, for the people on the ground, they have to keep leaving it off and doing something else. And so some of them have stopped participating in these projects, some of them participate but then find they have to do extra work to make up for what's uh, been lost uh, and, and so on. Now why is this possible? Okay, what is the structural dynamic here that makes this possible? And it has to be the disposability of those farmers in the terms of the interveners, right? If the interveners had to account for the opportunity cost to the farmers or to any other party that they intervene on, um, 
the field would look very different. If you knew something was going to fail and you promoted it anyway, what is your responsibility there, right? What are you actually doing? So what I'm trying to convey with this example is that decolonizing research and trying to think with those beneficiaries can really help you see a situation differently um, and think through it in the longer term. Okay, so to wrap up, I want to move back to the argument about decolonizing uh, Europe. I said earlier that the crisis in Europe might lead to a crisis in peace studies, and I want to um, think about why it is that that's the case. In the present day, we can see clearly how attitudes embedded in coloniality are fundamental to a series of crises in, with, of humanism within Europe. So inside territorial Europe, we are seeing more open racism, we are seeing more violence, we are seeing the uh, new uh, respectability of white supremacist attitudes and continued discrimination uh, against people, particularly in terms of Islamophobia. On European borders, we are seeing quite a casual attitude to thousands of people dying in the Mediterranean every year. We are not seeing enormous public outcries. Uh, we are seeing the criminalization of refugees and people seeking asylum. And outside territorial Europe, Europe has kind of continued uh, in a certain configuration of uneven relations, providing much of what we might call the global infrastructure of misrule. So this includes uh, systems of banking that allow the theft of public funds from countries around the world, trade rules designed to prevent competition for uh, Western primacy in areas as, ba as basic as food, investment treaties that prevent any serious redistributive efforts, even when those assets were acquired by uh, violence um, and maintained by violence, and Europe still at the centre of an arms sales system for both small and large weapons, which is underpinned and guaranteed by the state. So in a structural sense and in an acute sense, coloniality is central to how Europe uh, behaves and also how it continues to imagine itself. It's not a coincidence that the British Brexiteers want to go back to some imperial trading formation that the Foreign Office itself is calling Empire 2.0, uh, it's not a coincidence that the seeds of the Front National in uh, France are within the seeds of the bitter defeat of uh, France within Algeria. And it's not a coincidence that Trump wants to make America great again, right? It's the again bit which is the most interesting bit of that phrase, meaning America was great when it was a much more domineering white supremacist state in the past. So the crisis of liberal humanism is directly co connected to this loss of the imperial self, right? That's what the right is feeding off in terms of its imaginary and it's what it's trying to recapture. Now, even though this may be laughable, right? The conditions in the world have really changed uh, such that we will fully expect both Britain and the US uh, to be kind of smirked at when they go back to the trading table and say, okay, well, we're ripping this all up. But there's a political challenge which doesn't go away. Anti-colonial thinkers in the 20th century were very clear that to be anti-fascist meant to be anti-colonial, right? And that fascism and colonialism were two sides of the same coin. Uh, Aimé Césaire in his discourse on colonialism uh, pointed out that what Hitler was doing to Europe in the Second World War was what Europeans had been doing to non-Europeans for a lot longer in terms of the dynamics of hatred and supremacy that were underpinning it. So what's the answer? I'll conclude by um, looking at Fanon, right? In the last chapter of Wretched of the Earth, uh, Fanon, and he's speaking to the third world, he's not speaking to Europe, 
He envisages this future decolonized world in which the people of the world walk together, walk forward together, and they create space for their own inventions and own ideas. And he's basically highlighting two issues. First, he says that Europe refuses to acknowledge or accept responsibility for the things that it has done and is doing in the world, even where this has been catastrophically violent. He says that Europe is kind of fundamentally unable to accept this. But he says, never mind, we're going to go and create our own spaces, we're going to create a future in which Europe is not the only reference point for what we're doing. Fanon is not speaking to Europe, but I think we in Europe can take some inspiration from what he's saying. So the call to decolonize Europe means effectively these two things. First is a political space, learning to reckon with the past and the present, not through a haze of imperial nostalgia, but through a much more sober assessment of how uh, the West has contributed to the sum and contributes to the sum of human misery as well as human happiness. And I think in Germany it's a little different here because in Germany there has been a serious historical reckoning recently uh, in terms of the fascist atrocities during the Second World War. But this has never happened in the UK or France, right? There's never been the need to reckon soberly with, with what happened. And second, it means making space in a material, epistemic, political and economic sense for its internal others, but it's also its external others. So this means for us as peace researchers, thinking about how to create dialogue, dialogic spaces in terms of our research, how to use the power and the privileges that we have to redistribute opportunities, and broadly how to contribute to the dismantling of what is otherwise a rather alienating uh, tendency uh, in terms of the colonial episteme. Can we do it? I hope we can. There are lots of structural imperatives for why it's difficult to do, why it's very painful to do, and why most of that work will be unrewarded. Um, but given the crisis that we're presently in, I think it's the only way forward. <laughs>